What we're doing this morning is trying to cover a swath of Scripture uh, of Revelation chapter 4 through Revelation chapter 19. Uh, so I'm going to take the next 10 minutes and do that. And more than that, but at least the next 10 minutes. Um, I am gonna, I'm going to jump in here because we, we do have some, some things uh, to cover uh, of some very important things. This is, this is a, a reality that you and I don't like to, to, to deal with and that the world spends the majority of their time trying, not, trying to pretend like it doesn't exist. Uh, that's what you see in Revelations 4 through even more than, than 19, but specifically through 19. And so just a very quick recap. We are looking at this book from a futuristic approach, which, uh, which a futurist approach, which means that we're looking at these things as if they are to come, like they haven't occurred yet. They're in the future. And there's some significant events tied to that. In light of the book of Revelation period, we uh, said last week that John's primary purpose is to instruct and encourage believers in Christ through a presentation of Jesus as the role of judge. And, and it magnifies Christ as the one whom the Father has committed all judgment, i.e. these passages and more, but at least these passages. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son. It is the Son, Jesus Christ, who is the dividing line between condemnation and not condemnation. And those of us who have trusted in him, it is as if we, not as, as if, we have already been judged in the sense of our eternal life. Judgment has passed us. It has been paid for. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, the one who is worthy to judge, which we are about to see. He starts off, by the way, a book about judgment to his people, the church. And these are the people at the time that this is being written. These are real churches with real distinct characteristics. And John addresses these characteristics. And one of the things that we see is in Laodicea, which could be considered, if you're judging here, the worst of the seven. And you see an invitation by the, the one who is judging to open the door to him so that he may come in to their presence, to where they are, and fellowship with them because it is restored fellowship as his people that they need in order to uh, transition from where they are, to be transformed from where they are to, to where... Uh, their father wants them to be. He offers a restored relationship that they have stepped out of, a fellowship that they have stepped out of as his children. Just like real stories of real children who step out of fellowship with their parents all the time. It is the most heartbreaking thing in the world. And with a good parent, what they want more than anything in the world is a restored fellowship. That is the Father's heart for his people who have wandered. And so in the outline of the book, we have seen uh, chapter 1 is the vision of Jesus. That's chapter 1, things that are, instructions to the churches, chapter 2 and 3, and that are to take place. Uh, 4 through 22, which are things to come. This morning is kind of part A, 3A, if you will, uh, next week, uh, which is, a, I think, is a significant week in the church, I think. 
uh, if my memory serves me, we'll be looking at the remainder of that. And so what we're going to try to get to uh, in some of these chapters very briefly is 4 through 18, actually, this morning. And the outline of that, now again, according to how you interpret Revelation, there's probably people in the room uh, that, that may differ in, in this, but this is how we're looking at it because this is how we think that, that it's laid out. You have what's called to you get Matthew 24 and Daniel 9 gives us some heads up on uh, what this time period actually is. They have talked about the time period that is now actually coming to fruition or is being prophesied about. And what you have is a seven-year tribulation period. And you have a first half of it, the first three and a half years, uh, which we're saying is chapter 4 through eleven nineteen, and the second half, which is 12 through sixteen twenty one. So we're going to look at both of those this morning. And in light of both of those, what I have tried to do is narrow down uh, six major points uh, that we're going to see that I'm going to try to bring out in our teaching this morning. And there's the six major points. There are many more that can be made. I, I, I kept narrowing them down until I landed to these, uh, which is still probably too many to try to point out. Uh, but uh, you can read them there, uh, take a picture of that. I am going to actually point to these as they come up during our time. So this will not be the last time you see this slide if you, if you want to look at this slide. Now, chapter 4, I read you uh, chapter 4 uh, um, at the beginning of our time in the call to worship. And chapter 4 says this. Um, it is the, without reading the whole chapter again, it is setting the stage for everything that comes after because what you get is the throne of God and God on his throne and he is sitting and this is, this is four through six and it says around his throne are 24 elders and seated on the thrones were uh, 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. I obviously want you to note that, as is my underline there. Because in the light of the rest, you read through the rest of these chapters, what you're going to see is some version of that same verse show up a few more times. And when it shows up, it is clear what it's speaking to. It is speaking to a storm. Now that doesn't take a lot of uh, interpretation, does it? But the storm is God's judgment. And what you see is that coming before or during some very uh, catalytic judgment passages where lightning and peals and rumbles of thunder is coming. It is God's justice being doled out on those who deserve his justice, which is everyone, by the way. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are seven spirits of God. And also before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. One quick point here that could use some more time, but that we don't have. You see two images here. You see a storm brewing and, a, and, and, and whether we're looking at a literal sea or not, what John sees is something transparent and calm as if it was a surface of glass. You see two things. The justice of God represented by a storm, but in the context of perfect peace. 
I don't know about you, I asked a question in our life group. What do you usually think of when you think about God, a God who's judging? Like, what's the, what's the look on his face? What is his demeanor? What is his animation? And I have, maybe it has to do with, you know, my personality, um, which tends to walk around with a furrowed brow. Uh, but, but I visualize a God with an extreme furrowed brow who is executing judgment with great animation, you know, you, you know, throwing fire all over the place and wailing his arms and, and, and some kind of dramatic animation of such. No. You have a God who is utterly and completely in control of everything. There are all kinds of chaos is about to break loose on the earth and there is none where the throne of God resides. None. He is an absolute, complete control. I, you, what is the believer offered in life, particularly in the midst of persecution or tragedy? Do you know what they're offered? Peace in the midst of the storm. It's referred to as a peace that surpasses what? Understanding. Doesn't make sense. You and I, I was talking with somebody this morning who approached me several weeks ago about a friend who lost their spouse to suicide. And this friend was going through all kinds of internal chaos uh, about all the things that they could have or should have done differently or could have stopped it. And I mean, I can't imagine the things that you would go through in such a circumstance. And I also can't imagine how I would navigate that. I, I have no... There's no sense of confidence in me whatsoever. And I asked how this person was doing, and, and they said, they have chosen to just trust God with the events that have happened. And they're moving forward in a sense of peace. And, I, I, and I'm paraphrasing, right? But... That, that is a gift from the Father. And so then you see worship. And you see worship of the one who was and is and is to come. And then you see the one uh, the, by the elders who, who proclaims the one who lives forever and ever. And then you see the elders worship. And look at this in verse 11. Worthy are you, O worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. And then you see the attribute of which they worship him. Look at this. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. What is the attribute that, the, that he is being worshipped for? Creator. Do you understand? Because who gets the right to do with their creation what they deem appropriate? The one who created it. This is why we go through worldview. Worldview, we talk about creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So why creation is the most important one. You lose the idea that God is the creator of all things and therefore it is his will to do with them what he sees fit and you cease to have a biblical worldview that's going to guide you through anything. He is the creator, folks. 
The entire premise of his judgment is that he created all things and has the right to judge them. The right at the core of all judgment and the definition of sinful man is the failure to acknowledge that this is true, that he is the judge and he has the right to judge. Hence, we see the first of our major points. The creator God has the right to do with his creation what he sees fit. If you can't swallow that, you have trouble swallowing everything that comes after it, which is everything. You and I need to do a lot more submitting and a lot less arrogant question asking. The pot does not look at the potter and say, what do you think you're doing? Chapter 5, who is worthy to open the scroll. So in the right hand of the Father in chapter 5, he holds a scroll. And this scroll is pretty important. Um, It has to be opened. It is the representation of the judgment of God. But not just anybody can open the scroll. One has to be worthy of it. And in Revelation chapter 5, John starts to weep because no one in heaven is found to do it. And then this elder comes up to him and says to, me, says to him, don't, don't weep anymore. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seals. And then so the lion of Judah, that's what he hears the elder say. And five through seven, he looks and what's he, what he sees is a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And the lamb goes and takes the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And so what you see is you see two images that do not make sense. They are contrasting. And there could not be two things that are more antithesis of one another. A lion that is the king of the jungle, a lamb that cannot defend itself against anything. It has no defense mechanism. Not only is the lamb that he sees a a typical lamb, but it's as one who's already been defeated and died. You see two images that should not go together. And yet they are the same one. It is an absurd image unless it is not. The lion is the lamb that is about to act like a lion. The lion is the lamb, is the lion. Man, you don't, who makes this up? Somebody's made this up? I don't think so. There's your point. He is the worthy, the lamb, the Christ is the worthy executor of judgment. And when you see a lamb that's the worthy executor of judgment, you know what you get? Revelation 5, 9 through 14, you see ascending worship from the elders to myriads upon myriads, thousands and thousands of angels to every creature who are singing his praise to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then the four creatures sum it up with an amen to him who sits on the throne is worthy. 
The stage is set. The father is on his throne. The lamb who is worthy has the scroll, and he's about to start unfolding it, and he does. Hence, we get into chapter 6 through chapter 8, which are the first part of a three-part unfolding here. You see the seven seals that occur. And man, I'm going to go fast. Hang on to your socks. You have these I've, I've summarized the, the first four seals and going to land on the fifth one here for a second. But you have these horses that appear that are different colors and with them they bring different things. And there's just a very uh, vague uh, outline of what they bring with them. But I'm going to land on number five, which is the fifth seal, and it's called the martyr's cry. And in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, here's what they say. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. Why were they slain? The word of God and the witness to it that they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Their address, notice their address, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. What is their worldview? Obvious, right? Now look at their cry. How long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And what you get here is a longing by those who have been killed because of their testimony of Jesus for justice. And he is worshiped for it. There is a sense of justice in every man. This should not have to be taught. It is there. If you think you don't have it, let me take some of the closest people in your life and do some really harsh things to them and see if there's any justice that comes through in you. Granted, we don't care much about it unless we're the offended, and then we care deeply about it. You'll watch people being hauled off from their homes and never come back, but it is not till they come to your home that you have a problem with what they're doing. Justice exists. Now, what's his response to justice? They were given each a white robe and told to rest a little longer. They were not scolded for asking for justice, by the way. They're told to rest and wait for it. And then he says this, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Not only does God not scold them, he says, no, we're going to wait a little while longer until others, some of your brothers, come and join you and experience the same thing. This refers back to the question to Peter that I mentioned last week. Peter, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. Well, how about we just don't let him sift me? Lord, how about we just stop it now? Now, why does he keep going? Why is he going to allow this to happen? Let me tell you the answer. I don't know. Not really. Do I know? <laughs> Romans 12 says, Brothers, never avenge yourselves, 
but leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, and I will pay, will pay, repay, says the Lord. This is Paul in Romans. To the contrary, essentially, love your enemy. I don't know. Um, we only know how we're instructed to respond. Is there perfect justice? Yes. Who does it come from? God? Will he execute it? Yes. For those who trust him, Will he on their behalf set things right? Yes. What does that mean about our actual experiences as followers of Jesus on the earth? Nothing. Does that mean that God will provide for us? Yes. What is the definition of provide? We'll get into that a little later. The sixth seal, severe calamities. By the way, do men really believe in the, uh, do men really have a sense in their heart? This is very quickly. Do men have a sense in their heart of, when, of, of from whom calamity comes? I think so. If you looked in Revelation 6, you would see that all these calamities start to happen and there's all these people on the earth, the powerful, the rich, everyone, the slave, the, the free, they go and try to hide themselves from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of wrath has come and who can stand? You see these people understand that there is something going on here that is beyond us and it is the one who is in control of everything and our only option is to hide. They are not standing and contesting or debating what he is doing. They are hiding Everybody's going to know. Chapter 7, you see this, what's referred to as a parenthesis. It's the mercy of God. It's the God's mercy for the Jews, the nation, uh, the, 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 the people of God, uh, and the nation of Israel, and God's mercy for the Gentiles. And it, there's so much here that we're going to go through. But I'll say this, how, how people come up with an idea that God still doesn't have a plan for the Jews and a specific role for them in future events, I'm not sure uh, how that conclusion is, is brought to forth. Now, I, do I understand how it's all going to work out exactly? No. I just know that you see God's incredible mercy on the Jews, and likely it is by their testimony that these, uh, that these Gentiles mentioned in the latter half of chapter 7 are actually coming to faith. By the way, in John... Uh, in, this, in the latter part of chapter 7, you see these nations waving palm branches to celebrate the Lord's appearance. Remind you of anything? There'll be a second celebratory event of His coming. That chapter is worth reading, especially in the end. And then we get to the last one, which is the silence in heaven. It says, There was silence in heaven for a half hour when the seventh seal was broken. In chapter 7, uh, God said, Do not harm essentially anything on earth until my people are sealed. Well, now his people are sealed and the ceasefire fire is over. And uh, things are about to get really, really hard. And uh, the thing about chapter 8 that you see in this first part is a golden censer filled with the prayers of saints 
most likely those who are asking for the judge to judge and avenge. And it's like you're holding this golden bowl, a censer where these prayers exist and they're ignited and fire comes from them and that fire is thrown down on earth and that's what you see the judgment coming. It's like the prayers of the saints are the fuel of a fire that is the, the, the catalyst for his judgment. Before I get into the trumpets, here's what you see in these seals and trumpets and bowls. You see an increased intensity in them. Where the seventh of the first leads to the first of the next in all three of these. When we get to chapter 8, verse 6, the trumpets come out. Vegetation is burned in the first one. Oceans are disrupted in the second. Rivers and streams are poisoned in the third. Luminaries, the sun, the moon, the stars, darkened in the fourth. And then you get to 8.13. And in 8.13, if all that is not bad enough, you see, I looked and heard an angel crying with a loud voice, flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on earth at the blast of the other trumpets and the three angels that the three angels are about to blow. So if the seals in the first four trumpets are not bad enough, it's about to get worse, he says. In the fifth trumpet, demons are loosed, and demons are loosed particularly to invoke a punishment uh, torture on those who are not sealed, those who do not have the seal of God, those, are not, those who are not His. And the torture is so deep that chapter 9 tells us that these people want to die and are incapacitated to the point that they can't. Being in a place that you want to lose your life is one thing. Being in a place to want to lose it and not be able to do anything about it is a completely different. That's how bad this is. And the sixth, mankind is decimated and we see a third of man killed. Now all of this judgment language is terrible. Um, but, but look at chapter 9, 20 and 21. The rest of mankind, those who do not die, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. They don't respond to it. What is judgment for, ideally? What, 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 are you trying, what are you trying to do? When you, when you discipline your children, what are you really after? A, re, a repentance, a transformation, a conforming, which is implied in all of these. We get to, there's more of them. They don't repent. They don't repent. They don't repent. Rye in the world. Here's the other thing you need to notice. These are religious people. They're worshiping. Do you understand? They're religious people who are worshiping anything and everything except the one who is worthy to be worshiped. Anybody in here ever thought or said out loud or heard somebody say, you know what? Speaking about religions of the world, you know, we're all just worshiping the same God. No, we 
are not. I look, all these coexist signs on are you to coexist? Yes, of course, in a human standpoint, in a respectful standpoint, in a value-oriented standpoint, absolutely coexist. Coexist in belief system? You know. I said this last week, somebody brought it up to me. All truth is exclusive and narrow. Do you understand? All of it. All actual truth excludes other truth. Anywhere you can land, land anywhere you want, you're being exclusive. Even when you say there is no exclusivity, do you know that you're exclusive? Do you understand that? It's like an oxymoron, isn't it? There is no exclusive truth. Yeah, well, is that exclusive? That definitive statement that you just made? Is that definitive? Yes! Okay. (laughs) It's the fourth movement, the fourth point. Judgment is based on the refusal to repent. Therefore, it keeps going. In chapter 11, you see the seventh trumpet. And here's what it says. Uh, in verse 6, it actually says, uh, and this is another type of parentheses, by the way, 10 through 11, 13, where there's a gift of the seventh trumpet, and that is there is no more delay. And no more delay means that the mystery of God is going to be revealed. The mystery of God that is going to be revealed is Christ's reign as king over the whole earth. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In other words, the one who has the right to rule, which has been delayed to this point, is delayed no longer. I don't even have time to go into the two witnesses that absolutely display the absolute conflict of those on the earth at this time toward anybody that would tell the truth about who the Lamb actually is. There's all kinds of warfare and conflict here. What you see in the two witnesses is a place and a time on earth where when you witness to the one true God, the one true creator who is worthy to be worshipped, that, that, that there is rage against it. Absolute rage. These two witnesses will be killed and there will people celebrate in the streets of their death. They will have a par- the world will stop and have a party that these two people who have been plaguing the world with their nonsense of a God that is holy and judges is dead. See any intensity? Chapter 12 sets the stage for something else. Sets the stage for the second half, essentially, of this tribulation period, which begins in chapter 12. I meant to have you a slide there, and I don't. But this is the setting the stage for the second half of the tribulation. And in chapters 12 through 14, that's what you get. And in chapter 12, it says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And you see the characters in chapter 12, and an essential event 
in chapter 12, where Satan essentially is banished from anywhere other than the earth. And what you see in the second half of the tribulation is Satan in a fit of panic and rage. How's that going to go? Well, that's what you get in the second half. His defeat is imminent. His time is short, and he senses it, and he wants to do as much as he can do with regards to damage. He becomes furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. I read that woman to be uh, representative of the nation of Israel and her offspring to be Christ and all that they have gone through to bring about the Messiah. But nevertheless... However you re- see that representation, here's what is, what is true. On those who keep, he is, he is making war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That is sure. Because the enemy hates God and his people. We have a roaring lion walking around, attempting to devour devour whomever he can get his hands on. Very quickly, you see in chapter 13, two beasts arise, which are likely representative of two nations that come up. And these nations will blaspheme the name of God, and they will make war, verse 7 on the saints, and they will be allowed to conquer them. Authority will be given them over every tribe and people and language and nation. Um, And in light of that, this is what is said to those who will be the Lord's who will be conquered by their enemy. If anyone is taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. Hence, the sixth major point. By the way, none of these points are made with only the scriptures that I'm giving you. They're made multiple times. There is a distinct call of the believer in the midst of severe persecution. Now, what we read this to be is these believers who are relatively new believers, by the way, because they're believers who have come to faith during the time of the tribulation. What we think is the church is gone at this point. But the call to the believer in this time during severe persecution is not any different than the call on the believer. Now, do you know that there are multiple places in the world probably the vast majority of those who call on the name of the Lord and trust Jesus as Savior are persecuted severely in our world as we speak. You know, earlier when I said all this, you know, is justice, is justice going to happen? Yes. Is it going to be true? Yes. Is God our Father? Yes. Is He going to provide for us? Yes. What does that mean about our experience here on earth? Nothing. Remember that? If you and I are the Lord's, can he be trusted? Can he be trusted? 
Do you get to decide what his faithfulness to you looks like? Do you get to decide that? What if you send your nine-year-old to Christian school one day and you never see her again? What if you send your spouse to work for the last time tomorrow morning? Has God ceased to provide? Can he be trusted? You better settle this in your mind before that time gets here. He is either sovereign and true and can be trusted or he is not. And our circumstances on this world doesn't dictate any of those things about him. The second beast institutionalizes a system. And this is what Revelation is known for. They come along with a beast. Hey, you're going to pledge your allegiance to these rulers and this country and this nation. And if you don't, you won't eat. I.e., if you hold your allegiance to the Father, you are likely either going to, you and your family, by the way. If I'm just talking about you, that's one thing. If I'm talking about your kids, that's another you're either going to starve or what seemed to be die via a beheading. There's a, there's a portion in, in later in Revelation that says now all these beheaded martyrs stand before the Lord. Probably from this time. The persecution faced in this moment. Those who do worship, Revelation 14. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand... He will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast, these religious ones, whoever receives the mark of its name. What comes next? Endurance. To live in obedience to the Father no matter what it costs you and your faith in Jesus. This is the rest of 13, by the way. Because what? If what I said is true a few minutes ago, what is ultimate healing? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, blessed indeed, that they may have rest from their labors. What's ultimate healing? Hey, isn't it a great thing that Lazarus was raised from the grave after three days? Isn't that phenomenal? That's so cool. Wouldn't it be cool to be raised from the dead after three days? He had to die again. Like, he had to do it again. In the dramatic healing of being raised from the grave, he now has to die again. If I, knowing what you know, did Lazarus come out of the tomb and go, what in the world am I doing here? Increase intensity. 
Revelation 15, I saw another sign of heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And then you see seven bowls open. And in those bowls, the first is on the earth, where you get physical ailments that come upon the unbelievers, those who are not sealed. Second, in the sea, where everything in the sea dies. The third, the rivers and the springs become blood. And then you see an interlude of a worship of an angel. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. In the middle of the last set of the most intense judgments doled out on the earth, you see this pause for worship. Worship, why? In light of judgment. Remember our point? That the judge has the right to judge and judgment, justice, is being called for and worshipped. Worshipped. The fifth, the throne of the beast goes dark and the Euphrates rivers dry, river dries up and the enemies of God prepare for a battle that in the end is not even going to last long. And then the final bowl in 16 is a bowl on the air. And then after that, it is said, it is done. His bowl judgments are completed. And then you see in chapter 17 and 18, which begins a contrast of two cities. One is a city that represents the city and the culture of the world. The other one is a city that represents the culture of the heavens. Guess when we're going to talk about that one? That'd be next week. Not this week. This week, you see the image of a harlot that's called Babylon. And these are two things that are said about her. She is like a woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Do you think that the dividing line between those who are gods and those who are not are getting lighter and lesser or darker and greater? Which one? You don't even need me to tell you, do you? You feel it. You feel it. We felt it like no other time in the course of our history than over the last five years. Uh, John Stone Street, this last night at the Friday Night Focus, if you were there, you heard a quote uh, that I heard him make at a conference, and that was referenced this past Friday night. The things, could you ever, how to go, the, oh, how short a time it has taken for the things unimaginable to become unquestionable. Things unimaginable to become unquestionable.
like that. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Amen. What do you take away from this? Does everybody completely understand now Revelation 4 through 18, chapter 4? Now, what I want you to do is I want you to go teach that to somebody this week, okay? Uh, and instead of uh, 50 minutes, I want you to do it in 20, in 20. If you don't challenge you, what are you, you, know, you going to do? Here's our, what are our takeaways? There's a bunch. Here are four. The reality of judgment cannot be denied. Do you know what I can't do for anybody? I can't relieve the uncomfortableness or the reality of a judge who judges. If I trust my scripture, I don't get an opinion about that. I just get to submit to it. But in the midst of that judgment that is very real, the call of the believer to endure and hold fast our faith in Jesus, while admittingly in context, that is for a future time to a future set of believers, that call is the same for us today is as much as it is for them. And again, for a lot of believers in the world right now, it's as real as it will be then. It costs them their lives. Numerous studies have come out to say that we live in a time period right now that is the greatest time period of martyrdom that has ever been. Number three, what is our comfort? The one who is going to judge is our Savior. That is our comfort. We are His. For those who have trusted in Jesus for the message of life, we are His. Judgment has passed. Number four, justice, judgment is the prerequisite of grace and salvation. You can't logically celebrate, claim, proclaim grace or salvation in any form or fashion without justice. Is that clear? It is a holy and righteous God who sits on his throne, who has created and has the right to do with his creation what he wills, who stands in judgment over everything that is not holy and righteous, which is everything, including you and me. 
and he is going to be just and holy and righteous, and he is going to punish unholiness and unrighteousness because that's what a just judge does. And in so doing, he is going to set things right, as is right is defined by him, not you, not me. And it is that that, uh, that is the premise of our need for some type of escape from that judgment, i.e., his grace, i.e., his salvation. You don't get grace and salvation without justice and judgment. Can't have it. Don't try. It is just and judgment that actually makes grace and salvation what it is. You find somebody who takes grace for granted, and I'll show you somebody who doesn't understand the depths of their sin. It is the bad news that is the context and the prerequisite of the good, i.e., Good Friday, Easter Sunday. If you are someone who has not trusted in Christ, come, come talk to me. Come talk to somebody I can point you to, one of our elders, somebody in our community, and just say this. What's the deal? We'll take it from there. Father, thank you for the gift of your grace and mercy and salvation. And Father, may the reality of who you are as just and judge do what that reality is supposed to calls us to see you for who you are and come to you and bow our knee. You are to be praised and worshiped because you are the creator and you are right in your judgment and in your judgment. Help us to wholly submit ourselves to it and therefore come alive. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.